The U.S. has been in Iraq for seven years, and I realized the other day when I heard this clip of tape that I'm about to play you that I've never even really understood what Baghdad looks like. So what are we looking at? Well, right now, that's, um, we're here right almost in the geographic center of Baghdad on the fifth floor of a hotel. This is Larry Kaplow, a journalist who reported from Baghdad for the first six years of the war. He went back this summer with one of our producers, Nancy Updike. They spent a month in Iraq. Think of, think of Miami because it looks like that. It's totally flat and there are lots of palm trees and lots of big highways. And think if you came out of uh, Cutler Ridge or Coral Gables, um, but it was walled in. Um, just to drive along a street and have two feet away from you, you look out the window of your car, you see nothing but wall. It's too tall to even see the top of it out of your car window. You just look out and you see wall segment, wall segment, wall segment. So it's like Miami, except these concrete blast walls that honeycomb the city, 12 feet tall, giant gray dominoes, thousands of them, creating a kind of endless maze. They fully enclose entire neighborhoods, which means that to run errands or go to your job or do anything normal outside your own neighborhood, you go through checkpoints each time you cross from one place to another over and over. Even the soldiers at the checkpoints find these checkpoints so depressing that lots of them are decorated with fake flowers, bleached by the sun, in strands and bunches. Now, the other thing about the way the city looks, Larry says, and he's back in the States, he's actually sitting right here with me in the studio, is that with Saddam Hussein gone, Baghdad is now clearly a Shiite city. It's been majority Shiite for generations, but you couldn't tell before Saddam fell because Saddam led a regime dominated by the Sunnis and they tried to paper over the religious differences between the two groups. But that changed the day the U.S. invaded, right? Right. I was there, and within hours after the regime fell, we immediately saw people putting up the, the Shiite flags, the satiny, all black, all red, all green banners going up on houses, offices, mosques, along with these, these portraits or icons of, of Shiite figures. And it was like suddenly there was this whole other geography of the city, a place we thought of before as like, okay, this is just a poor neighborhood. Suddenly it's like, wow, this is like a really, this is all Shiite. And then you go to the other richer neighborhoods and they don't have any flags here. These must be the Sunni engineers and professors who are in the regime. Hmm. And it really changed your whole sort of sense of geography of the city. And, and let's just like review a bit before we say anything else about Iraq. Okay, Shia versus Sunni. Well, it's a big oversimplification, but one way to think about it is that they're like Protestants and Catholics, Shiites being like the Catholics. They have a hierarchy of priests or imams leading all the way up to ayatollahs and grand ayatollahs, the way Catholics have a hierarchy of priests leading all the way up to the Vatican and the Pope. They have much more of an emphasis on rituals, on icons, on what we call saints. They're religious leaders throughout the centuries. And the Sunni um, doesn't have that. The Sunni don't have that. And, and some Sunni will say the Shia are not focused enough just on Muhammad and God, that they've created sort of this assortment of religious leadership. You know, they would look at Shia and say they're too showy. I don't need to show off my religion like that. The same way some Protestants will look at Catholics and say that and sort of turn up their nose at that. Now, the Sunnis are the minority in Iraq. Saddam Hussein was Sunni. And now that he's out, the overwhelming majority of the country, the Shia, are in control. In the past in Iraq, Shia and Sunni lived side by side and they intermarried. Since the invasion, as we've all heard, there have been periods of Sunni and Shia killing each other. So today, how are they getting along? Well, Nancy Updike, who was in Iraq with Larry, is also in the studio. And Nancy, how is that going? 
Well, Larry and I talked to this Shiite guy. He's an educated man, a professor. You've known him for years, right, Larry? Right, I have, although he still didn't feel safe to be speaking to Americans on the radio, so he didn't want to be identified. I just wanted you to meet him and hear him talk about daily life. Like he told us that his salary, which was $3 a month before Saddam fell, is now $1,000 a month, and, and that's very typical for people now who have more money. On the other hand, he told us that he has to go through 10 checkpoints every morning to get to school. The trip used to take 15 minutes. Now it can take an hour or two. And then in the middle of this, as we were talking to him about his life, I was surprised because people don't usually talk about this so openly. He goes into the tension between Sunni and Shia. We have not recovered fully. We are still in the recovery period. So he's Shia. He's got Sunni friends. He has a Sunni girlfriend. And he told us this story about a Sunni friend of his who owed him $200, and they were going to lunch to settle up this debt. The professor suggested a fish restaurant in a Shiite neighborhood that would be safe and comfortable for him. And the friend, the Sunni friend, wanted to go to a neighborhood called Al-Adamiya. Just a year ago, the professor would never have gone to this neighborhood. It just would have been too dangerous. But he let himself get talked into it. So we were there in a restaurant, invited by him, uh, to tell the truth, at that time, sitting in that restaurant, uh, uh, I had my concerns. You didn't feel safe? Yes, of course, because I, I, I am shiat. For a shiat to be in al-adamiya, it is a danger, and a big danger. By the way, my family blamed me. You, you go for such a place. And alone... Why should, you, uh, why should you have gone to such a place and alone? Uh, I told him, but he's my friend. N- even though, do not trust him. So the professor is sitting there with his Sunni friend in this pizza restaurant. This is all just a few months ago. And he's trying to keep the conversation on politically neutral subjects, how things are going at the university. And then an Iraqi army convoy passed in front of the restaurant's window, And his friend watched the convoy pass and made a comment. He said, okay, when Americans withdraw their last soldier here from Iraq, we, uh, the national resistance... The national resistance, meaning the Sunni insurgency. We'd restore things to normalcy. Normalcy for him means that they should be in the lead. Sunnis should be in power. Yes, yes. Like they were in Saddam's day. I just, you know... Gave him a fake smile, which is not real. <laughs> okay, yeah. Uh, then he said, oh, why don't you uh, claim you are Sunni? Don't say I'm Shiat. Because your thoughts are very nice. And your thoughts are in conformity with ours, you know. So always do not ever say I'm Shiat. Now in Iraq, there is a freedom of speech. But still, we have to, you know, uh, we have to be careful when speaking. Uh, In Iraq, now there is a big division. From WBEZ Chicago, it's This American Life, distributed by Public Radio International. I'm Ira Glass. This August, when the United States declared an end to combat operations in Iraq and pulled back its troops, officially lowered the number to under 50,000, One of the things you didn't get very much in the coverage is that you didn't hear many Iraqi voices. So Nancy and Larry spent a month in Iraq and talked to lots of people because we wanted to understand, with the U.S. pulling back finally, how are things going? How well is the country emerging from the war? How are people feeling? What's Iraq going to be like after us? 
That's our show today. In three acts, stay with us. Daquan, what just happened? Lots of us understand it's still kind of a mess in Iraq right now, but the specifics of that mess are a little vague. And to get a grip on that, let's start with the story of one man and everything that this one man has seen since the invasion. The man's named Abu Abed. Nancy uh, tells this story. Here's what I knew about Abu Abed when I met him. He was an Iraqi who had fought with the Americans in Baghdad during the surge, and he'd become a small legend, the game changer who helped the U.S. drive al-Qaeda out of one of the most dangerous neighborhoods in Baghdad. Probably the bravest man I ever met. This is Colonel Dale Keel, the U.S. commander of the area in Baghdad where Abu Abed fought al-Qaeda. He confronted him face-to-face on the street. How many people can say they did that? Stood up to al-Qaeda when they were controlling a town like that where 16 American soldiers died in one month. Two years after helping the U.S. rout al-Qaeda in Iraq, Abu Abed was living like a fugitive. A suicide bomber tried to kill him in Baghdad, and he and his family fled Iraq for Jordan. It didn't help. They had to change addresses every couple of months. Abu Abed was attacked in the street. They were getting death threats from al-Qaeda, including a note handed to his son at school. His wife was stabbed during an attempt to kidnap their son. A few days before I got in touch with him, Abu Abed paid a smuggler $50,000 to get him, his wife, and their two children to Sweden. Abu Abed, whose real name is Saad Orebi Ghafouri el-Obeidi, has letters full of praise from American generals, saying he should be allowed to come to the U.S. General David Petraeus, former top commander of the war, wrote one for him. But America turned him down flat. No explanation, even now. Abu Abed sits on the edge of a couch, unshaven, in cropped khaki pants, khaki shirt, and sandals. We were told to go to uh, the embassy, uh, where I waited in the hall, fully expecting uh, to be granted my visa, and they said, you've been denied, Uh, and it's it's a a final decision. I, I couldn't believe it. I felt like um, I felt like I just got a bullet in the head. Sweden is still deciding whether he can stay. They asked me, well, here, here you have these recommendations, the highest-ranking American military personnel. Um, why aren't you in America? How haven't they taken you to America? And I don't, and I don't know what to say. The Iraq war has had one question at its heart, with an answer that keeps shifting. Who is our enemy? Abu Abed has gone from being a central character in U.S. strategy to an exile sleeping on a friend's floor. And those are only two of the roles he's played in the Iraq War. At every turn in the war, every change in U.S. tactics or strategy, Abu Abed has been there, either benefiting or getting pounded. He's a living catalog of the seven years of decisions, of successes and failures, that have made up this war. During the first phase of the war, Abu Abed was our enemy. He was a captain in Saddam Hussein's air force. In intelligence, he says, his country was being invaded. Then the war very quickly entered its second phase, the insurgency, IEDs, car bombs, sniper attacks. The insurgency was led by Sunnis, many of them former Iraqi army officers. Abu Abed was a Sunni and a former Iraqi army officer. But he insists he was never part of that. He never fought the U.S., I asked him about it so many times he got exasperated. 
If I wanted to, I could get up and say that I fought the Americans. I could uh, take pride in the fact that I fought the occupation and uh, I would I would be able to win many people's re- respect in, in, in Iraq and in the region. Uh, but it's just not true. This has been Abu Abed's official position for years, so it's hard for him to back off it. But a U.S. Army captain who later befriended him says Abu Abed told him the truth. He did fight the U.S. He was part of the insurgency. But to make things even more complicated, he was also reaching out to the U.S. as early as 2004, feeding them information. Like any smart gambler, he was placing more than one bet. In this early stage of the war, the insurgency, one of the coalition forces' main tactics was raid, arrest, interrogate, which happened to Abu Abed. He was picked up in a neighborhood sweep. Soldiers came in. Translator told me to put my face to the wall. Uh, I said, well, what's going on here? And he said, just put your face up against the wall. I confirmed with another U.S. officer that Abu Abed was arrested early in the war. Abu Abed says he was interrogated by American civilians, private contractors. I was put in a room where I was hung uh, by my arms. I was couldn't uh, sit down and couldn't rest all the time with a bag over my head. For days I was dying of thirst for water, and they wouldn't let me drink. They would just pour the water on my face. They wouldn't let me drink from it. Abu Abed says the civilian interrogators held him for around 20 days. They were insisting they knew who he was. They kept calling him a name he remembers as something like Shaddat, and they wanted him to admit it. Nothing he said could convince them otherwise. Abu Abed says the torture and interrogation ended when he was suddenly switched to a different room. Given a bed, given a TV with a DVD player and DVDs. Uh, they asked me, what kind of movies would you like to watch? And I said, I like Sylvester Stallone movies and Arnold Schwarzenegger movies. So they brought me a bunch of bunch of those movies, and um, they said, listen, we're, we're very, very sorry, but we've discovered that uh, it's true that you're not, um, you're not sure that. Uh, they said, please, you know, we, we know we're, we were looking for this person, and we realized we made a mistake uh, with you, and he sa- I said, no, I can appreciate that, I understand what the problem is, and he, he said, so we're friends, and I said, yeah, we're friends. By 2006, the war had changed again. Many Iraqis now refer to that early insurgency as the honorable resistance, to distinguish it from what happened next. Iraq turned into a sectarian war that was basically a gang war. Sunni gangs, often allied with al-Qaeda, versus Shiite gangs. And if you were a regular person trying to live your life and weren't in one of the gangs yourself, the differences between them seemed mainly stylistic. One man told us, the way you know Al-Qaeda is pulling up to your house to kill you is that they're dressed like ordinary guys and shouting, Allahu Akbar. The way you know a Shiite militia is pulling up to your house is that they're dressed all in black and shouting the names of Shiite saints. Abu Abed's neighborhood in Baghdad, Amaria, is a Sunni stronghold a place where members of Saddam's military got nice houses and had lived well back in the day. Some Sunnis in Abu Abd's neighborhood joined forces with al-Qaeda against their common enemies, the Shiite militias and the Americans. In fact, at the height of its power, al-Qaeda declared al-Maria its capital, 
they appointed their own finance minister, education minister. The new Iraqi government was desperate. 2006, we virtually lost control over Baghdad. This is Saad Matalabi, an advisor in the current Iraqi government. We were completely surrounded. They had control of many areas in Baghdad, and the Americans didn't know what to do. And uh, 2006, 2007, we were seriously worried. But then something changed. People started to hate al-Qaeda. In Amaria, al-Qaeda kidnapped and brutally killed an older Christian couple who everyone liked. Abu Abed saw a friend whipped in the street. They would whip a person, strip him of his clothes, and then whip him either with a, with a whip or a stick, um, cut off a person's hand, they would cut out a person's tongue. They forced every female teacher to, uh, if she wasn't wearing a hijab, she'd be executed. Al-Qaeda went into Iraq seeing themselves as liberators, overplayed their hand, and alienated people. And that's when the American forces and the Iraqi government got their big break. The Sons of Iraq, also sometimes called the Awakening or the Sunni Awakening. The Sons of Iraq is a very decentralized organization. In fact, calling it an organization is probably not the right way. This is Colonel Keel again, whose area of command included Amaria. Before the Sons of Iraq showed up, the U.S. had been focusing for years on a failed plan, recruiting and training the Iraqi army and police to get them able to secure the country. When they stand up, we will stand down. It wasn't working. In fact, it was making things worse. The police force we were building, which was overwhelmingly Shiite, had pockets of Shiite militias who would kidnap and kill people, often without bothering to change out of their uniforms. Abu Abed says two of his brothers were killed by a Shiite militia. In Amaria, the Sons of Iraq started in late May 2007 when Colonel Kiel got a phone call from a local leader, a sheikh and an imam, who Kiel had chewed out 10 days earlier, following an IED attack on his men. Kiel had told him, you have to help us fight al-Qaeda. Calls me, and it was in the middle of the night, and uh, says, hey, we're going after al-Qaeda tomorrow. And I'm like, you're going to do what? He says, we're going after al-Qaeda tomorrow. We just want you to stay away. We just want you to stay out of here. And I said, Sheikh, I can't do that. I can't leave the neighborhood. Um, we argued for about 20 minutes. I said, give me the intelligence, we'll go after it. And he said, no, it won't work. We got to do it ourselves. And um, uh, after a while, I said, "Okay, don't don't point your weapons at my soldiers, and don't point your weapons at civilians, or we will we will engage you. And we will shoot at you. We will shoot you. I I think that literally, I said, we'll kill you. He said, okay, and then I wished him luck. What followed was a quick initial victory and then a furious counterattack by Al Qaeda. The Imam called Kiel for help, and the U.S. forces went in and pushed Al Qaeda back. And then... That's when the negotiations started on how are we going to do this. I got a call from another imam. I would say he was probably the most influential in the neighborhood. And he says, okay, there's someone that you need to meet. And so that's when I met Abu Abed. Um, one of the strangest experiences of my life, because I'm in there with guys who look like insurgents. And it's just, it was out at the mosque we met. And, you know, he was exhausted. And the first meeting didn't go so well. He was making demands that I'm like, no, we ain't going to do that. Like, What were his demands? Um, he, he was saying, hey, if you just let us do what we need to do, we'll clear this place out. Um, basically, free reign to, to take care of business. I, that was a bit much. 
Um, their point to me was that the U.S. Army and the Iraqi Army could not do it without their help. And that was a, that was a humbling experience. Someone tell me, what do you mean? You know, I'm... The U.S. Army. The U.S. Army. I can do anything. But he was right that we could not do it alone. And this was Abu Abed saying this to you? That's correct. Each Sons of Iraq group developed its own working arrangement with the U.S. military in the area. When Abu Abed and Kiel joined forces, they signed a Memorandum of Agreement, which was also signed by the Iraqi Army commander in the area. The deal was Abu Abed and his men had to coordinate their operations with the U.S. military and the Iraqi Army, no going off on their own. Anyone they detained had to be turned over to the U.S., at first within 24 hours, later within two hours. No torture. All the fighters had to be fingerprinted and given an eye scan. In return, Abu Abed got an office, four pickup trucks. They all got uniforms. The U.S. paid them about $300 a month and promised to help them get jobs later. Abu Abed commanded a shifting group of men that at one point numbered several hundred Overall, the Sons of Iraq was a total of 103,000 people countrywide at its height, a huge boost to the American forces, who numbered 170,000 in 2007. This was the most successful phase of the Iraq War, the part we've come to shorthand as the surge. What this meant in Abu Abed's case was that the same man who'd fought the Americans, who'd been picked up and tortured by coalition forces three years earlier, had reached out to the U.S. military and was now working with them every day. You're, you're having a, a soda on top of a, a U.S. tank. Abu Abed has dozens of photographs from his time fighting alongside the U.S. military. The photos were among the few things he insisted on bringing with him when the family was smuggled to Sweden. In the photos, Abu Abed is leaner than he is now, with a mustache. He looks relaxed and energized a man whose talents are in demand. The more he shuffles through the photos, the happier he gets, telling war stories. There was a time when we were, we uh, went right into a uh, Al-Qaeda uh, hideout and uh, bullets were flying from every direction, flying at us. It's the most animated I ever see him. Every American we talked to who fought with Abu Abed said he was an incredible soldier. One, Captain Brian Waitman, described him as fluid, that one percent who can remain calm in the middle of hair-raising chaos. Able to inspire men, Waitman said, including him. Some Americans called him a brother. Once the Americans embraced the sons of Iraq, it forced the Iraqi army to work with them. And in Amaria, the three groups together were an unstoppable force against al-Qaeda. In the midst of this triumphant military campaign, in which Abu Abed was a crucial partner trusted every day with American lives, two U.S. captains Abu Abed worked with came to him and said they'd been told to take him to some meeting with some people. So Abu Abed went to the meeting, not thinking much of it. They opened the door and I saw this group of people that said they wanted to meet me. And I instantly knew who they were. I knew exactly who they were. It was the group of civilians who'd interrogated him in 2004. The same people, he says, beat him, hung him from his arms, and held him captive for as long as they wanted. Those same people were now smiling at him and saying how glad they were to see him. Abu Abed tried to stay calm. They asked me if I remember them. 
And I said, no, I don't, I don't know who you are. I don't, uh, I don't remember you. Because I, I was so hurt, I, I said, I don't remember you, even though, of course, I did. And they said, well, we forget the past, uh, right? We're, we're friends now. I said, are you sure you don't remember us? Uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't know who you are, I said. Then they opened up a laptop with a picture of me. They said, well, who's this? And that, that the picture of me with the number on um, across my chest, that the number of when, uh, me when I was captive. I spoke with one of the captains who sat in the room, not really understanding what was going on, who these people were to Abu Abed. The captain said there were other photos on the laptop, too, like a book of mugshots, fighters the U.S. was looking for, and the interrogators seemed to be asking Abu Abed if he knew anything about them. But all Abu Abed could focus on was his own picture. Why did they show that to him? Either it was a threat, help us or else. Or maybe to the interrogators, the torture of three years earlier was such ancient history that they didn't think it would matter. That was yesterday. We're friends now. Or maybe they were screwing with him. I started asking myself all kinds of questions. All kinds of questions were spinning around um, in my head. I, I wanted to know how did they see me? What was I in their eyes? Was I, was I a terrorist? Um, is that how they perceived me? Um, I felt incredibly wronged. Um, um, I, but I, I didn't know what the, what the point was. It's still not clear what the point was except that Abu Abed got whipsawed by two different phases of the war, the raid and interrogate phase and the brotherhood phase. The sons of Iraq were widely loathed by the Iraqi government and its security forces, and they didn't keep their loathing to themselves. An Iraqi army officer accused Abu Abed of killing one of his relatives, the U.S. investigated but could never confirm that the man who'd allegedly been killed had ever existed. Other accusations against Abu Abd cropped up. Some are still out there, unproven but impossible to refute. That he killed 35 Shiite civilians. That he beat an innocent man to death. And then in November of 2007, a story came out in a British newspaper, The Guardian, that starred Abu Abd in the worst way. The reporter spent three days with him and painted a portrait of an arrogant, power-hungry thug, kicking and slapping a man outside his house for a supposed insult, screaming at the security detail for Iraq's vice president, Do you know who I am? Here I rule. I am the commander of Amaria. Did you dare to show your faces here before I kicked al-Qaeda out? Also, interrogating a child about an alleged weapons cache. The lingering image from the article is Abu Abed's men holding him back as he tries to put his gun in the child's mouth. I, I did not believe that that story was truthful. I thought it was embellished. Could I be wrong? Sure. Colonel Keel published a long rebuttal to the story, saying the overall picture of Amaria it showed was wrong, the sons of Iraq seemingly running rampant with little or no supervision by the U.S. military or the Iraqi military. His rebuttal did not, however, refute any of the specific incidents the story described. In fact, he concedes that some of them happened, though he doesn't believe Abu Abed put a gun in a child's mouth. When the story came out, Kiel was furious at Abu Abed. He believed Abu Abed's vanity, his desire to build up his own reputation as a tough guy, was putting the entire Sons of Iraq project at risk. He called Abu Abed in for a talk. I was telling him, listen, I might have to, I might have to remove you. Why didn't you? Um, 
people were, were very willing to report bad things going on, whether it was Abu Abed or somebody else. In this case, I got nothing. And so why I didn't believe the story, and, and again, could I be wrong? Sure. But uh, I just didn't have the evidence here other than this story. And am I right or wrong? I don't know. And there was one time we actually considered, is are, is he the right guy for this? And what happened? Um, we, we came to the conclusion that uh, this is the right guy. I compare them to having a crocodile as a pet animal. This is Saad Matalabi again, the government advisor who talked earlier about how he worried they might lose control over Baghdad. He's talking about the sons of Iraq. They were the crocodile he saw. Armed men, not under government control, roaming the streets. The U.S. military had a solution to that. They thought the Iraqi government should absorb most of the sons of Iraq into their security forces, the police and the army. Make those mostly Shiite forces represent the country as a whole by adding Sunnis. But to many in the Iraqi government, the sons of Iraq were insurgents, period. And its leaders like Abu Abed were former officers from Saddam Hussein's army. The insurgents really didn't fight for the new Iraq. That's what the way we saw it. They fought for control over the region that they had previously control over. The way that the government dealt with us was to, was to just slowly squeeze us out. Abu Abed says he and other sons of Iraq wanted to form a police force in Amaria. He says they were prevented by the government. They appointed a uh, police officer to lead the police station in our area who was from the south. Meaning Shiite. And then they appointed his deputy, and then they appointed others who would uh, work under him, um, all to make sure that, that we were squeezed out and that we wouldn't have any official capacity. The Iraqi government essentially won this argument, in part because the U.S. was eager to move on to a new phase of the war, the phase it's still in, achieving political stability so the U.S. forces can leave. What this meant for Abu Abed is that when he talked to U.S. military guys, there was a new catchphrase, Iraqi sovereignty, meaning if the Iraqi government wants to put someone else in the police in this area instead of you and your guys, that's their business and we're not going to intervene. He says this was different from what the U.S. military had been saying to him before this point. One of the things that they said often was that you will have a place in the new Iraq that they won't deal with you on a sectarian basis, that, um, that you'll be included in, in this new uh, leadership. And did you believe them that, that that was possible and that they could deliver that? Uh, at, the, at the time, yes. Uh, why did I believe it? Because this, is, this was the, the, the force that brought down the previous regime in Iraq. This is the force that created the Iraqi government, that, uh, that established the Iraqi or- army. Uh, of course, I believed it. The more successful the sons of Iraq were in neutralizing al-Qaeda, the less necessary they became. They made themselves obsolete. Kiel saw this coming and tried to warn Abu Abed. Later, Kiel led a big effort to try and get him to the U.S., rallied a network of churches and people, and vouched for Abu Abed personally. But Kiel was blunt with him when they were recruiting for the new police force in Amaria. Did not really see him as a serious 
a candidate to be the head of the security force. You didn't. I, I didn't, and we were actually f- trying to figure out who would be the right guy to do that. So, and and just just so I, I understand fully, this is somebody you you've been working with for months, leading this group, trusting him, the bravest man you ever met. Why not him? Um, it goes back to what I think he was good at. I think he was a great fighter. I think he was great at, uh, very charismatic, and I think he was the right guy to go fight al-Qaeda. I did not think he was the right guy in the right temperament to lead a police force of a community like that. He's a hothead. Um, Meaning what? He has a temper, and it has caused him some problems that he's still having to deal with. Um, we would not have rooted al-Qaeda out there without a guy like him. But I, I think there was a transition that needed to happen. Somebody that that had probably a better temperament that could deal with, you know, the politics of just being the leader of the community. General Petraeus added a handwritten note to his typewritten letter of recommendation supporting Abu Abed's application to the U.S., The note says, he risked everything to stand against al-Qaeda in Iraq, and he has paid a heavy price. We should help him. He underlined should. A lot of Iraqis have helped the U.S. and paid a heavy price, and we've turned many of them away, for any blemish or seeming blemish. And who has more blemishes on his record than a fighter? The Sons of Iraq, our alliance with them, was a big success for us. And this is the mess that goes along with it. Abu Abed's old neighborhood, Amaria, today is mostly calm, but bleak. Some of the buildings are pitted by gunfire and crumbling from bombings. There isn't a Sons of Iraq leader in Amaria anymore. Abu Abed's successor was blown up by a suicide bomber a few weeks before we got to Iraq. One of the few Sons of Iraq foot soldiers left in Amaria was working at the checkpoint into the neighborhood. He hadn't been paid in two months. U.S. and Iraqi officials say the Iraqi government has stalled on services in Amaria and other Sunni areas, in part to undermine the popularity of Sons of Iraq leaders. The U.S. has been pushing reconciliation in Iraq, saying it's key to stabilizing the country, trying to get Sunnis and Shiites, plus the Kurds, to work together and share power. It's not working, the chief of the U.S. reconciliation program in Baghdad told me. Sons of Iraq, especially its leaders, have been arrested Some are being killed, sometimes with their families, by al-Qaeda, by other rivals or enemies. Some, like Abu Abed, have fled. There's an arrest warrant out for him in Iraq now. Some U.S. officials believe the charges are politically motivated. The cold fact is that Iraq may not need reconciliation to have stability, depending on how brutal the Iraqi government is willing to be, and we're willing to let them be. If they put enough Sunnis in prison or drive them out of the country— while welcoming the few they do feel able to work with. The Shia majority might be able to run the country without ever reconciling with the Sunnis, which might be fine with us if Iraq were our only war. In Afghanistan, Afghan fighters have raised the issue of what's become of the sons of Iraq in meetings with the U.S., according to an American officer who served in Afghanistan. Everywhere we want local fighters to help us, they're going to ask themselves, how will we end up? Nancy Updike. Coming up, what is that crushed garbage underfoot everywhere in Iraq cities? 
and other things that nobody has told you about life in Iraq today. That's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio and Public Radio International when our program continues. This American Life from Iraq Glass. Today on our show, Iraq after us. Reporter Larry Kaplow and one of our producers, Nancy Updike, spent a month in Iraq this August as U.S. troops were ending their combat mission. And they traveled around the country interviewing many, many more people than we will be able to fit into one hour today to try to understand how things are going in Iraq. In this uh, half hour of the show, we're going to hear two more stories, two more acts from the uh, stories that they gathered. And we're going to go straight from one to the other. And we're going to start with Act 2, Politics as Usual. One of the biggest political challenges facing Iraq today has to do with something that's so basic, and that is that for decades, the country was run by a dictator. And even before that dictatorship, before Saddam Hussein, there were other strongmen and there were kings. Government in Iraq has basically meant somebody at the top imposing order and control on everybody below. And the United States has tried to convince Iraqis that democracy means distributing that power, sending it out of Baghdad, out of these big central ministries, and sending it all over the country, giving political power to local mayors and newly formed provincial councils. Iraq is uh, divided into a bunch of provinces that are kind of like states. But Iraqis are not used to that. They are used to top-down. Nancy and Larry went to Diyala province, just north of Baghdad, to see whether the old mentality has changed at all. They started at the bottom rung in a top-down government, the mayor's office in Diyala's capital city, Bukuba. Larry tells this story. The mayor's office is behind blast walls and barbed wire, and it's not really a municipal building. It's basically a large house at the end of a residential street. Inside, there's a short, dusty hallway with scuffed walls and a small foyer with a few loose metal chairs. And it's filled with people, maybe 50 of them. People are literally pressed against a plexiglass divider at the end of the hall. An old woman shouts, I'm not a dog, I'm a human being. Nancy, our interpreter Sarah, and I approach a man who tells us he was injured in a bombing back in 2006. He's a Shiite, and they were usually the targets. After more than a dozen operations on his leg, a doctor classified him 70% disabled, and he can't work his farm. So he's here hoping to get a note from the mayor to help get compensation promised by the government. There is a, a million Iraqi dinar as a claim for my injury. It's been one year I want to get this million and no one uh, give it to me. A million Iraqi dinars is about $850. The man with the leg injury and everyone else here wants to see the guy behind the plexiglass divider. It's kind of like the Wizard of Oz. They're hoping he can solve their problems. But when we get back to see Abdullah Hayali, the mayor of this district of 500,000 people, it turns out, like the wizard, he's mostly powerless. Ahayali tells us he doesn't control what's happening on the city's streets. The police force answers to the army, not to him. The schools and the hospitals are run from Baghdad. He can't authorize big public works projects. It's not so different from how it all worked under Saddam. And there's no plan for that to change. He still depends on the central government for almost all his money, too. Definitely no hospitality budget. He points to the table in front of us. And for your information, too, uh, this is a simple example. The tea, the water, it's all from my own money. You mean the tea that we're drinking, the water here on the table? 
He says the tea is no big deal. He's just trying to make a point. Ahayali's in his mid-30s, and he's charming. Both times we see him, he's dressed like he's going to a nightclub instead of City Hall, in perfectly coordinated suits and ties and even socks. He's dapper but beleaguered. Take the issue he says everyone's complaining to him about, roadblocks. The Iraqi army has barricaded all the roads into the center of town. They're meant to prevent car bomb attacks, but they've completely choked off the downtown. Yes, yes, they blocked it and uh, they stopped everybody from working and uh, make living for their families. And without uh, uh, taking my uh, my order uh, or ask me for it first, because I am here the highest authority. Just imagine if an army blocked all the traffic to your downtown without consulting the mayor or anyone else. And I, I don't want to be proud, uh, but really I am a social leader, and they make decisions without asking me or telling me about it. And, I, and really, I want them to hear this message. One thing he does have a say in is who gets houses that the United Nations is giving away. They're supposed to go to refugees whose homes were destroyed. It's a U.S.-funded program to bring back people who fled the violence. But we heard he was giving some of the houses to relatives, even if they still had homes. So we asked Al-Hayali about it, expecting a sharp denial. Yes, yes, many of these things happened. I don't want to talk about ethics and say that I am a perfect man. Yeah. Are you saying that sometimes you do have to give houses to your friends and family because they pressure you? Not by force, but, 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 by, but by love. Not, you know, yeah, call, calling you pressure. up. And, uh, <laughs> yes, maybe, maybe they, they really pressure on me because... Uh, uh, maybe sometimes they, they wouldn't uh, even uh, do some work for me because I didn't give them the, the house. In Iraq, family comes first because family might be the only thing you have to fall back on. All the other institutions are so fragile. The next rung up the government ladder, above City Hall, is the Provincial Council. If the provinces in Iraq are like states, the Provincial Council is like the state legislature. The council meets in a fancier building than the mayor's office, much fancier. Tea and water flow freely. But that doesn't mean it works any better. All the provincial council, uh, no one of them served the citizen of Diyala. No one of them. Meet Amr Thamer Mustafa al-Kirki. He's a member of the provincial council, but he's mastered the political art of being outraged like he's some man on the street. Sarah couldn't keep a straight face as she was translating. Uh, the citizens of Diyala are disgusted by the situation of the provincial council. There is no electricity, no sewage uh, services, garbage everywhere. It was a fascinating interview. Picture Al-Khirke, a trim 54-year-old in a dark suit, in the imperious bearing of the army general he was under the old regime. He had two main points he wanted to make. 
One, I live to serve the citizens of Diyala. In fact, if I am not able to do uh, or serve uh, the people in Diyala, I will quit. And two, my allies and I refuse to meet with the other members of the council. No, we will not. We will not attend the meetings until they meet our demands. We spent most of an hour trying to understand how Al-Kirke could serve the people of Diyala as an elected representative without participating in the political body to which he was elected. But to Al-Kirki, this whole line of questioning was beside the point. What's important to him is that his party didn't do well in local elections about two years ago. They got three out of 29 seats on the provincial council. But by early this year, the mood had shifted, and the party, led nationally by Ayat Alawi, did very well in the national election, the one held this past spring to choose Iraq's new parliament and prime minister. So Al-Kirki is threatening to call a do-over. And we will make a new uh, uh, election here in, in Baqub. And why? But why? It's as if the Republicans in America looked at their poll numbers and asked for a do-over of the 2008 presidential election right now. But, but that's the way elections work. But that's the way elections work. You don't get to say when the election comes, when you're popular. You, you have to wait for the four years, right? No. He's saying no. The law says that if a third of the provincial council wants a new election, they can petition the parliament to call a new election, which is true. But trying to do that would throw Diala into many more months of paralysis and drift, which is what the bombers and militants want too. They've killed 381 people and wounded over 1,000 in Diala so far this year. Al-Qaeda is using this fighting to blow things up and to show people that nobody is in charge. It, it, people are getting hurt in this time. God willing, we will solve all these problems and we will find the solutions for all troubles in Iraq. This is politics in Iraq today. All these institutions are so new and so weak, and the politicians don't see the point of working together and compromising. For them, you're either in charge or you're not like in the old Iraq. And if that's your mentality, with everything in flux, if you're not on top, the most sensible strategy is to stall until power shifts again. Act 3, Today in Babylon. Iraq is stable now. In geopolitical terms, Iraq is stable. We saw that when we were there. Kids go to school... People with money go out to dinner and take vacations. Men hit the nightclubs in Baghdad and drink beer. Young couples have fancy, deafening weddings. But stable in Iraq just means it's not flying into pieces anymore. Stable means stable enough for us, the rest of the world. For people who live there, it's still dangerous, frightening, and just plain difficult. There aren't enough jobs. Huge numbers of people survive on a couple days of work a month or they live off relatives. Officials expect bribes for everything, passports, business permits, police protection. The prisons are horrific. There isn't enough clean water. The entire country is carpeted with trash. It seems to be 90% flattened water bottles. And there's still bombings and killings, 200 to 300 dead per month. That's a tenth of what it was three years ago. But imagine if a dozen or more people were being blown up by bombs each month in any U.S. city for seven years. You don't get used to it. 
Iraqis haven't developed some special Mideast super immunity to violence just because they've seen a lot of it. Larry and I talked to so many people who were just exhausted by relentless, low-level fear. So we made it our mission to seek out people who are happy and plowing ahead in spite of it all. We stopped in at a shop in Abu Abid's old neighborhood, Amaria. It was full of women and stocked floor to ceiling with herbal remedies of every kind, including... Snake oil. Snake oil makes uh, a long hair for the women, and it's so good for, to make the hair strong. An actual snake oil salesman. His shop was clearly a hub for women in the neighborhood. He joked around with them while he told them how to take the medicines, threw some English in. Hey, uh, one before breakfast, one before uh, uh, lunch, and then I'll welcome my sister. After the women left, I started to ask my first question. How are things in Amaria now? How is I want to check because one of the ladies left here a bag. I need to check it. He was checking her bag to make sure she hadn't left a bomb behind. My friends with the women, she's my friend, but I also got my suspicions about it. Within five minutes, he was telling us how, during the worst of the violence three years ago, his older brother had been kidnapped and the family impoverished itself to pay the $17,000 ransom. Uh, we sold many things, uh, our car, another shop, everyone from my uh, sisters and uh, sister-in-law's uh, gold, we sold it. They killed him anyway. And we asked them, why you killed him? His name is Hossein. Hussein is the name of a Shiite saint. He was killed by a Shiite militia. They said he's a Sunni and he's a Dulaimi. Dulaimi, his last name, is the name of a large Sunni tribe in Iraq. The man started to cry and went to the back of the shop to collect himself. We didn't give up on our mission, but the reality was almost any person we talked to in Iraq was only one or two questions away from despair. Even our translator, Sarah, who was always sunny and joking around, broke down during an interview. It happened after a man we were talking to, a Sons of Iraq leader in Diyala, plucked a tissue out of a box to make a point. I'm sorry. He says the American forces use us. Like a tissue. I feel the same thing. (laughs) I'm sorry. Sarah was an interpreter for the U.S. Army during the surge, and she was wrongly accused of aiding the insurgents, put in prison, and by the time the charges were dropped, she'd been blacklisted and couldn't go back to work for the U.S., one of the few decent-paying jobs in Iraq. She's the only breadwinner for her two boys, Her husband was killed because of her work with the Americans. We went to what seems to be the happiest place in Baghdad, Zahra Park, which has a big amusement park with rides and places to picnic. In the rest of Baghdad this summer, you might get an hour a day of city electricity. But Zahra Park is always lit up, like any carnival midway. It was packed with groups of young single men and families. 
One family was having a nighttime birthday picnic with cake and candles for one of the women's two-year-old granddaughter. We came here today to just sort of escape from the lack of water and the lack of electricity, just to come here to have fun, to have a change of atmosphere, to celebrate, to smile, you know, that's all. The park cost money. The cake and the outing were a big deal for this family. They're Shiites from Sadr City, the poorest part of Baghdad. We're just laborers day by day. Um, basically, if we do get paid, then we eat and we, we drink and things like that. And if we don't have a job, you know, labor is a day by day job. If you get a job, it's great. If you don't, you know. Of course, this being Iraq, where hospitality to strangers is a national creed, the family insisted we join them for cake. And we were two minutes in, I clocked it, when they started telling us their version of the snake oil man story. An aunt chased down and killed by some of her Sunni neighbors, the rest of the family driven out of their home. Even our neighbors were trying to kill us. They were um, waiting for us at the end of the street. My neighbor from the other side had called me and told me that you should leave immediately. So I took my boys and my husband and we left the area. I asked them what they thought about the U.S. These were people who had been terribly oppressed under Saddam Hussein. At the same time, many more Shiite civilians have been killed in the last seven years than Sunnis or American troops. The woman I was talking to clammed up and had to be coaxed by our translator. Finally, she said, uh-huh. Basically, what I'm, I don't want to give you the truth because I don't want you to be um, disappointed or upset because, you know, I don't want you to feel that um, I'm degrading your country or anything like that. I said, let me have it. See Americans as the enemy. As they came in, they were the enemy. Because um, as, as you might know or, or might heard, you saw all the killing in the streets and the kidnapping and the ransoms. Um, uh, they're the enemy. I mean, there's no point. In, I mean, I can't emphasize to you how much that they, they hurt the Iraqi community. We were under the impression that they would, um, you know, pick up the pieces. They would put everything together again. But instead, they shattered it. There's a quote from the U.S. military's counterinsurgency manual, the textbook for the strategy that helped turn the Iraq war around. It says, Sometimes societies are most prone to unrest, not when conditions are the worst, but when the situation begins to improve and people's expectations rise. The worst violence in Iraq ended about two years ago. But in those two years, Iraqis haven't seen their daily life improve at all. Their relief at not being in constant danger has worn off, and now they want more than just survival. They want to move forward with their lives, but they can't. We did eventually find someone who didn't cry, a soft-spoken man named Firaz Khaldun with a shiny, spacious store full of ice cream, soda, and canned goods from Syria and Turkey, even condiments from the U.S. But even him, when we ask him how it's going, he says with a laugh, about uh, 85% bad. In the six months since he opened his shop, two bombs have gone off nearby, one of them shattering his windows. The city's decrepit power grid surged and started a fire in the store. 
and bombings in the market downtown led the Iraqi army to close off a bunch of the roads. So when he tries to restock his store to run his business, it takes a Rube Goldberg series of motorbikes and trucks. He told us the same thing a lot of people did. The snake oil salesmen, our translator Sarah, people in the mayor's office, the park, in stores, hardworking middle-class people. He wants to leave Iraq. Most of these people won't be able to leave, but they want to. And there are a lot of them. Well, our program today was reported in Iraq by Larry Kaplow and Nancy Updike, produced by our senior producer Julie Snyder and Jonathan Menhivar, with Alex Bloomberg, Ben Calhoun, Jane Felta, Sarah Koenig, Lisa Pollock, Robin Semyon, and Alyssa Ship. Seth Lind is our production manager. Emily Condon is our office manager. Production help from Sean Wen. The song you're hearing is by Hussam Al-Rassam, one of the biggest Iraqi pop singers. It's a love song. Special thanks today to Danny Kopp, Kirk Johnson, Ben Landau, Art Brennan, Kelly McEvers, Eric Dahlbaum. Thanks to the Special Inspector General for Iraq Reconstruction, to Colonel Marty, Colonel Kelly, Major Zinni, and Major Peters. Thanks to Shane for watching out for Nancy and Larry. Thanks also to their interpreters, their fixers, their drivers, and to their guard, whose uh, names we are not going to say for their own protection. You know who you are. You know how grateful we are. Our website, thisamericanlife.org. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International. WBEZ Management Oversight for our program by our boss, Mr. Tori Malatia. You know, he is not just our boss. He is not just a great public radio professional. He is also a part-time professional mind reader. Your thoughts are very nice. I'm Eric Glass. Back next week with more stories of This American Life. Public Radio International.